0: Our sermon text is from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul.
1: Oftentimes when we think about the setting of a book like Acts, when we think about this ancient world, we tend to imagine it as a place that was vastly different from the world that we live in. And that's fair because there are lots of things that, that the ancient church uh, didn't have that we have, lots of technological advancements and things like that. But this week in particular, as we get into the story of the, the church spreading into the city of Antioch, I want to remind us of how similar some of the settings in the New Testament are. In fact, this might be the the one setting in the New Testament that is most like our city in Boston. Um, This is one of the the great cities in Rome that we come into, the the city of Antioch in Acts chapter 11. And Luke tells us that in this city, we find the the first group of people who were called Christians. And I hope this morning, as we dig into this text and we start to study it, we're gonna find that this text has a lot to show us about our own lives here today. Um, the way that our faith can have an impact in the city of Boston and what it means for us to live faithful lives as Christians in this city. Um, this is a city where some of us were born. We've always lived here. This is the, the place we've always called home. And for others of us, we have moved here from somewhere else. Some of us are here because we came to plant roots and we don't have plans to leave. And others, we might just be passing through for a season. Um, but I think for all of us, this passage leads us to ask the same questions. What does it mean to be a Christian in the city? What are the unique Blessings, the unique challenges of our context, and what is it going to take for us to live faithful and impactful lives while we're here? And for us to find the answer, I want us to look at uh, three points in this text. The first is the reality of cities. The second is the message to Christians in the city. And finally, the hope of the gospel for all of us. So the reality of the city the message for Christians in the city, and the hope of the gospel for all of us. Okay, so let's talk about the city first. Um, This passage, it begins with a reminder of the context, uh, this persecution that happened a few chapters ago. We read about Stephen, one of the first deacons, how he was brutally murdered. And uh, the passage starts off by saying, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So after this big moment of persecution, Christians finally, they start to go outward. They start to to preach and witness along the way as they're dispersed, And at first, they were only witnessing to people like them. They were only witnessing telling the the gospel message to other Jewish people. But the place where the church starts to grab hold, the place where the church starts to really take root and thrive was not just amongst fellow Jews, but it was amongst this non-Jewish population in the city of Antioch. so for some context, Antioch was a big city. It was the third largest city in ancient Rome. It had about 500,000 people in it, which is not too different from the size of our city. But uh, because back then there weren't high-rises and uh, big apartment buildings or even triple-deckers, right, the, the city was much more densely packed. Uh, there wasn't as much space for all these people to live in. And this, uh, Antioch was located in ancient Syria which is modern-day Turkey. It was along the the Silk Road, which means uh, there were a lot of different people coming through the city all the time, and eventually it became a very diverse city with people coming from all over different parts of the globe. Uh, Rodney Stark is a sociologist, and after studying the city, he said that there were probably at least 18 different, distinct ethnic enclaves within the city. There were, there's evidence that they had Roman, Greek, Syrian, Persian, Indian, African, Chinese, even barbarians who had come down from Gaul lived within the walls of the city. Um, When you have that kind of a mix, in the ancient world, it also could cause some problems. Uh, That same sociologist, he says that the process of social integration in Greco-Roman cities, was was severely disrupted because of all the ethnic divisions. Um, Ethnic diversity, this constant influx of newcomers, tended to undercut uh, the social integration and expose the residents to a variety of harmful consequences, including high rates of deviance and disorder. That's the way he put it. But what he really means is saying that because there's all these different kinds of people in the city, and they don't know how to communicate well with one another, and they have all these different cultures and all this baggage, it was kind of a volatile place. Um, there was a lot of upheaval in the, in the city of Antioch, and that might sound like a recipe for disaster, but instead of the, the city being a hindrance to the gospel, what we learn here is that it created this great environment for the gospel to take root and even to flourish. And not just here in Antioch. If you read the New Testament, you find that, that all throughout the, the narrative, the place where the church tends to take hold is in the city. It's in these diverse urban contexts where the church tends to, f- to flourish, to grow, and then to spread out into other regions of the world. Um, and that's worth noting, especially since there is this tendency, this sentiment amongst a lot of Christians to think that the city is the worst place for the church, that the city is the toughest environment for the church to thrive in and for the gospel to grow. And I understand that. I I get why people might feel that way, especially if you live here, if you've been here, you you know. You can look around uh, to other parts of the country. You can read about other cities, and you see you know, the churches are much bigger. There's lots more people statistically that call themselves Christians, and there seems to be less obstacles to a general kind of Christian mindset. You know, you see that on a big picture. I know, personally, I've had plenty of encounters with individuals, with organizations who seem, you know, unusually hostile to, to Christianity up here. I still have a hard time, after all these years, getting over the fact that there are so many Puritan-founded churches uh, in the area that just refuse to even associate with Christians now. It, it, it can often feel like when you live here uh, that the odds are against the church. But we need to be careful that we don't let that data uh, lead us to believe that Boston is a place where the gospel is unlikely to take hold. Cities are primed for the gospel in many ways that other parts of the country aren't. You realize that? You know, people who are not from the city, they often look at the city as like a negative place, right? A place where there's lots of crime, there's lots of of turmoil, and of course, you know, there's truth, there's higher crime in cities. Anytime you get lots of people together and and push them up in a small space, you're going to have more problems. But there are also a lot of positives in cities in, in urban contexts that prepare us to be sensitive to the gospel. Cities are unparalleled in their ability to provide and care for people. You know that? The city is a place where people flock when they need social services, when they need work opportunities, when, they're, when they are looking for opportunities in, in building connections. Uh, The city is a place where people can combine their resources to make robust policies to help and care for the poor and those in need. And, and, And that means the city is also a place where the marginalized come. Marginalized populations, they come here looking for refuge and finding other people who are just like them, where they can make connections and build community. So far from a city being a place where faith is doomed, Scripture often talks about the city as a place in which God meets and uniquely blesses His people. Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 107. uh, The psalmist is talking about uh, one of the ways God blesses His people is by bringing them to the city. It says, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Scripture tells us the city is a place of blessing. And and I believe that one of the primary benefits that being in a place like this offers is that it, it fosters this sense of openness amongst people. One result of being in a town where there are people from every different place, from every different background, from every different culture, is that it forces us to engage with people who are different from us. You are not gonna survive long in this city if you cannot handle somebody that disagrees with you. If you cannot engage with somebody who has different opinions and different ideas than you do. And that kind of constant exposure that you have to different ideas, it opens us up. It opens us up to uh, dialogue, to conversation in ways you often don't get in more rural communities, right? We all know that picture of like the, the well-dressed, you know, city person walking into the small country diner or whatever, and, and all the people kind of turn their heads and look and, and they stare and say, you know, you're not from around here, are you, right? That doesn't happen in the city. In the city, you expect to be surrounded by people who look different from you, who dress different from you, who have completely different worldviews than you do. You expect different opinions. You expect different ideas. And that sets us up to be open where other people might be closed off. It trains us to learn how to engage people, to learn how to consider things, to, to dialogue rather than to run away in fear or to stand against someone in judgment. And over the years, the place I've seen that most clearly is in a group that I've been a part of uh, off and on called Draft and Dogma. It's like a a beer and philosophy discussion group that that we lead. Um, And it it gathers a lot of people. Almost everyone is is not a Christian, and we kind of talk about ethics and topics and... uh, Everybody's, you know, really nice there, but they are all coming from certainly very different perspectives. And I'll never forget, um, after several meetings where this one guy continued to come and we talked about topics, uh, they allowed me to express my Christian worldview and and where my hope is, and and we're relatively unjudgmental, you know, open to to the conversation. And after one of these meetings, uh, one guy asked me for some info about the church. He said he was interested. He wanted to come by, and he did. He came to the church, and he started to attend pretty regularly, and eventually he, he joined the church. I ended up, like, you know, overseeing his wedding, and he was a member here, and then, like happens in the city, eventually got a job somewhere else and, and moved on, but there was this idea that, you know, in the city, there was, there was an, an, an atmosphere where this guy was able to engage, where he was able to, to dialogue and discuss, and even to, to have his heart opened up To hear the good news. Um, That's the unique reality of the city. It, It has challenges, of course, but the challenges also lead to this increased opportunity for the gospel to take hold. And that's precisely what happens here in the city of Antioch. And so the second thing I want to talk about is the message for Christians living in the city. If you were here with us last week, we studied that really important passage where Peter gets this revelation that the Gentiles are now welcomed into the kingdom of God. And remember Cornelius, he, he come, Peter preaches to them, and while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes down, and it's this huge event. It's, it's, it's central to the message of this book. And you may remember at the end of that passage, afterwards, he goes back to Jerusalem to let everybody know what happened. The city of Jerusalem, that's the headquarters. That's where all the leaders were. That's where the influential people lived, and we have the same thing happening in our passage today. It, it tells us that when the gospel started to take root in Antioch, as this church started to to grow, people went back to Jerusalem to tell the leaders. They went back to, to headquarters to tell them what was going on, and as the leaders got together, they sent out someone to go check it out. They sent out this guy Barnabas. Now, we haven't uh, Talked a whole lot about Barnabas yet. We haven't gotten really familiar with him, but he comes up a lot later on in this book. We first heard about him, if you were here, way back in chapter four. He gets mentioned as someone who carried out this particularly great act of generosity. And they tell us his name's actually Joseph, but everybody called him Barnabas because he was uh, such an encouraging person. He was a son of encouragement. And then here in our passage, uh, Barnabas is mentioned as a man full of the Holy Spirit. And of faith. And so they send Barnabas to this new church. And when he arrives, this is what Luke tells us, verse 23. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's his message. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's a one-line sermon. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's short, but it's powerful. And at its heart, that line is a call for endurance. It's a call for faithful endurance, and I think it's really the crucial piece of this whole passage. It's the the most important line in the whole text we're looking at. Um, Tim Keller, he is a, a big deal, famous preacher, used to be the pastor at Redeemer in New York City, and we're kind of sort of connected with them. Um, He preached a great sermon on this text. It's probably like 20 years old now. You can go online and find it, I'm sure, and it is all about uh, the benefits of the city. I, I listened to that sermon years ago when I was first getting into church planting. It had a huge impact on me. In fact, I've I've preached on this text before at this church. I think our second summer of existence, when I was doing Vision and Values, I picked this text to preach on that theme of the church in the city. But coming back to it now in the context of a study of the whole book, I'm I'm realizing that as great as that sermon is, as great as we need to think about uh, those themes of the city, this little mini-sermon is the one I really love. This is the one that has all the the power in it because it is a reminder that there are some really great challenges that face Christians who live in cities. And it's an encouragement, an exhortation that in the midst of those challenges, we need to be steadfast. We need a, a vital, daily dependence on the Lord if we want to live faithful lives here. I already mentioned there's a lot of benefits to being in an urban context. A lot of blessings here that can lead us closer to Jesus, right? We just spent 15 minutes talking about some of those things. But there's also a lot of pressures in the city. And we are only going to survive those pressures if our hearts are anchored in the hope of Christ and the truth of his word. People in Boston carry a tremendous burden. There is a heavy weight on all of our shoulders, and trying to describe it is nearly impossible because there's, there's almost as many different pressures as there are different people. When I, when I was thinking about some of the, the challenges I've, I've heard firsthand, you know, there's, of course, financial trouble. But, but I, I've heard people speak to me about just how oppressive it seems that that they want to stay in the city but they cannot afford to to purchase a home. And then on the other hand, I've heard people say that they've always lived in Boston and they desperately want to leave the city but they can't afford to go anywhere else. I've met people who they're from other countries and they're sending huge portions of their paycheck overseas to to pay for family members living far away who just don't seem to understand that not every person that lives in the united states is rich and then of course there's the just normal like things that we all got to struggle with as soon as we we're paying rent you know we're, we're trying to figure out if you have children where to send our children to school um, there's the pressures of culture people who are from here they see the way the city is just changing. And they, they, they want it either to go back the way it is or they're just unhappy. They're struggling to, to feel like they still belong here. And then if you're not from here, there's that cultural pressure where you kind of always know you're not from here. There's things that don't feel like home. There's, there's things you miss and there's, there's a pull away. And then to add to those things, there's just the regular daily challenges of, of noise, <laughs> of busyness, we're all under stress, trying to fight through public transportation or, or trying to make our way through traffic. There's the loneliness that we deal with. There's, there's struggles with, with depression. A pastor once told me that the life of an urban Christian is also, oftentimes death by a thousand paper cuts. You just get so used to it. You get so used to to all that stuff, to the busyness, to the stress, to the daily grind, those little things that chip away at you, that you become numb to the needs of your soul. Can anybody relate to that? And Barnabas, he reminds us it doesn't have to be that way. God has not built his church in the city so that it's going to be filled up with miserable and exhausted people. That's not the point. He came to redeem us from that stuff. So Barnabas, he gives the church this call to endurance. He says, if you want to make it here as a Christian, then here's what you need to do. Remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. The ESV, it says steadfast purpose, and it's just not a way that we would talk, you know. It's, they're trying to translate this, this Greek phrase that's something like purpose in heart or purpose of heart. The NIV says, be faithful to the Lord with your whole heart. And I think that's a little better. I just think it's easier for us to understand what that means. Um, it means that when we are following Jesus... In this context, in this busy, noisy place where there are so many things competing for our attention, competing for our energy, competing for our hearts, Jesus cannot just simply be one priority amongst many. Knowing Christ is not something that can be on the periphery of our lives. If that's how you operate, you're not going to make it. The only way the gospel is going to bear real fruit in you is when Christ is at the center of who you are. When we are vigilant in the pursuit of Him. When we are passionate in our determination to know Him, not just a little, but to know Him with our whole hearts, right? Not just relying on secondhand scraps. I think we're all we have a tendency to do this, right? We, we assume that coming and hearing a sermon a few times a month or, or checking off the box that we've read our Bible or done a devotional, that that's going to be enough. We are living lives off of... Uh, we're living off of somebody else's spirituality. We're believing that, that somebody else can give us what we need, but what we really need is to connect with God with our whole heart. as your pastor, I see the pressures that you're under. I I know the stuff that you deal with on a daily basis. I do. I know how hard it is. I know the last thing that you need is a guilt trip to be burdened, to feel like you're not doing enough. But I want you to know that's the opposite of what I'm trying to do here. And, and that's the opposite of what Barnabas was, was trying to do. We're, he's trying to set us free from that burden. The one thing that you need, more than anything else, is for your hearts to be rooted in Christ. Rooted by hearing the Word. Rooted by prayer. Rooted by reading the Word. Rooted by fellowship with other believers. Rooted by just sitting silently before Him and waiting. And I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy. It's not easy because we're busy and all that stuff I mentioned. But also, on top of all that, Scripture tells us we have an enemy who doesn't want us to connect with Jesus. He is very happy to keep you busy and burdened. He is very happy to keep you entertained and distracted. He wants you to feel empty. (laughs) He wants you to feel overwhelmed. He wants you to be filled with unmet longings and desires. The one thing he doesn't want you to do is to remain faithful to the Lord with your whole heart. He doesn't want you to remember why you came to Christ in the first place. He wants you to be restless. He wants you to be distracted. He wants you to be exhausted. He wants you to give up on God. And so the message that Barnabas gives here to this church is a message we need to hear. Remain faithful to the Lord, not to the world. Make Him the purpose of our lives. Make him the king of our hearts. That's the message that, that all Christians need to hear, but especially us in this, in this city. And that brings us to the, the hope of the gospel for all of us. Right? It seems bleak when you put it that way. I know it does, that, that we have all these pressures, that we're... we're You know, there's this avalanche of of responsibility and duty and all these this noise and everything, and an enemy who wants to take us down. But here's the good news Satan, the world, they're no match for my Jesus. I just said Satan wants to to get you tired so that you will give up on God. But you know, at the heart of the gospel, there's this amazing message that even when we try to give up on God, He won't give up on us. Second Timothy, it says that when we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He can't deny Himself. The gospel message is about a real Savior. I want you to, to hear that. It's not, Jesus is not just another teacher. He didn't, isn't somebody who just came with a set of rules and another heavy law to burden you and crush you. He is a real redeemer. He is a savior. It, scripture tells us that he came into this chaos to rescue his people out of it. He did that by taking our place. That he, when he took on flesh, he came in and he experienced all of those burdens that we face on a daily basis. And in the midst of that, he remained steadfast. He endured firsthand all those same kind of pressures, all those things that, that pull and tug at us. And in the midst of that, he still loved God with his whole heart. And on the cross, he suffered in our place. He took the punishment that that we earned for all that faithlessness I was just talking about. For our weak, half-hearted unbelief on the cross, all the guilt, all the failure, all that stuff was nailed to the cross forever. That's what Jesus means when he says it's finished while he's dying. Barnabas says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And the Gospel says, if you are in Christ, that's already true of you. So don't lose heart. Don't fear. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Our Savior is hes a Savior. He's powerful. He's mighty to save. And and when the Holy Spirit presses that on your heart, That God actually, He loves you with His whole heart. That He has remained faithful to you even when you're faithless. All the way to death. That He guarantees your salvation. When the Spirit convinces you of that, it will change your priorities. He, the Holy Spirit, He will transform you from the inside out. And if that happens to you, If Jesus gets a hold of your whole heart in that way, the city will notice. I think the coolest detail of this story is that in Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians. It tells us in the story that after Barnabas preaches this message, he goes, he gets Saul, they come back, they teach for another year, all these disciples are raised up, and and then the people around them in the community start to call them Christians. And I like it because we know from the Bible this isn't a name that Christians chose for themselves. They didn't really like it, actually. Paul, they, you know, you'll read these guys talking about the way or the brotherhood, names like that, but the one that stuck is Christians, and it was given by people outside the church. Why, why that name? Why did they call him Christian? Well, it seems like because they saw all these people talking about Christ, and they were coming from all different parts of this city. This city with you know at least 18 different little precincts, the city with all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places are talking about Christ, and the only thing that they have in common is that one word: Christ. And so instead of it being the, the new religion for the Jews or the Persians or the Syrians or the barbarians, this was the religion that was bringing in everybody. Jesus Christ, this real Savior, he wasn't limited like those other teachers, like those other religious leaders. He wasn't limited by race or class or culture like all those other religions had been. He was bringing everyone in. And I love that detail because it's a reminder for me that Christ has no limits on who he can save or what he can save us from. No matter what your story might be, no matter how you might be coming this morning, Jesus welcomes you. He is the living God who has come to make us complete and to unite us all. He's the hope for this city and He's the hope for every one of us. And so as we're wrapping up, I just want to invite you to to take a moment here. Let's just sit silently for a second and and let's search our hearts as we think about Barnabas' exhortation. Remain faithful to the Lord with your whole heart. What would it mean for you to give your whole heart to Jesus this morning? What are those areas of your life that you're holding back from him? What priorities in your life are pushing him out? What pressures in your life have caused you to drift and to despair so that you're, you're feeling empty and burdened? I want to invite you to come to him this morning in repentance. Confess those false saviors Confess your need for his real rescue. I want to encourage you this morning to invite him to be the Lord of your whole heart. Let's let's take a minute. Let's just take 30 seconds or so and and sit there silently, and then I'll I'll close us in prayer.